Well, good morning, church, and I want to welcome those of you in the room as well as those that might be watching with us online. And Pastor Mike hinted at it a moment ago, but it's going to be good for the soul for me to say this. How about them Braves? I know a lot of us are probably a little bit sluggish this morning. How many of you, by show of hands, stayed up for the whole thing? Yes, okay. How many of you are not real fans and fell asleep earlier in the game? Oh, a few honest people in the room. Uh, so my goal is to not put you to sleep this morning so we can all enjoy when the Braves win the World Series tonight, all right? So by show of hands, how many of you in the room have ever seen commercials or advertisements about how you need identity protection? Ever seen an advertising about it? Very good. How many of you have a phone that requires your face or your thumbprint to sign in? Okay, very good. How many of you have bank accounts or some sort of account that requires a password to sign in? Very good. One of the things that frustrates me, if I can just be honest for a moment with you, is the specific banking uh, password that, that they require. When you go in, it's like every six months they want something new. They want an uppercase letter. They want a lowercase letter. They want some middle case letter. They're just gonna make stuff up. They want a 28 digits. They want three special characters. They want a strand of your DNA every different time you change your password. So whether we realize it or not, with every update that comes out, the requirements get tougher. So whether we realize it or not, we have safeguards in place that protect us from getting our identity stolen. And the thing is, everybody in the room, everybody watching online today, you know your identity in this physical life. You know your name. You know your phone number. Most of you probably know your social security number. You know the pertinent details of your life that you have to guard and that need to be protected. But today, I want to ask you a question that might be difficult for some of us in the room to answer. Do you know your identity in your spiritual life. And there's a certain uh, passage in, in the Bible in which Jesus questions his disciples to make sure they understand this critical issue of identity. It's found in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. This story takes place in a city called Caesarea Philippi. It was located north of Jerusalem and north of the Sea of Galilee, and it was about as far north as Jesus ever Minister. It was situated at the foot of a, of a place called Mount Hermon. It was a wild place. It was a wicked place. It was a place where they worshiped a fake God. It was a place where they had a literal cult of dancing goats. It was a place where they uh, practiced infant sacrifice. I mean, it was a rough, tough place to be. And there's going to be an image on the screen that kind of gives you a depiction of what this would have looked like. Uh, back in the day. Uh, as you can see, uh, right there, it's got kind of in the middle, there's this little pagan temple off to the right. There's this, uh, the area where they literally uh, was, a, was a cult of dancing goats. I mean, this stuff is weird. You cannot make this stuff up. And this place, as you kind of get your mind wrapped around what it would have looked like, this was the exact place that Jesus takes his disciples. And so our text takes place in the last half of the ministry of Jesus, and Jesus builds upon this secular setting where there's a pagan temple, where there's mythological worship and infant sacrifice to make his point regarding their identity. So if you have a Bible or a copy of God's word, if you'll take it, in Matthew chapter 16, we'll start reading in verse 13, the Bible says this. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So what is Jesus trying to teach us regarding our identity, and how do we protect it? Number one, we must understand that our identity is not in culture. Our identity is not in culture. Look at verse 13 again. He says, now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples straight up, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So Jesus begins by asking the disciples, hey, what is the public opinion? What do people say about me? Because the disciples, they were in the crowds, they were in the thick of things. They would have known what the public opinion was, they would have known what the crowds would have said, and so they would have heard the opinions voiced by the majority of the people as Jesus went about preaching, teaching, and authenticating who he truly was. Now make no mistake, Jesus is not asking this question because he doesn't know what they think because Jesus knows everything. Jesus never asked questions in the Bible because he was actually trying to obtain information. Every time you see Jesus asking a question in Scripture, it's never to obtain information, but it's always used as a rhetoric and as a tool in that conversation. So Jesus asked this generic question to kind of prepare his disciples for what's coming next, right? It's kind of like the practice leading up to the game. Like tonight, the Atlanta Braves are going to go and take batting practice before the game begins to practice for the actual game. So the disciples answer Jesus, and they give him kind of four different opinions on what they had heard in the crowds. Number one, oh, they say he's John the Baptist. Maybe, maybe they thought his ministry was similar, or they had a kind of a similar message. They say, maybe he's John the Baptist. You have other people that say, well, no, 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 he is Elijah. They thought he performed miracles like Elijah, and he believed the warnings of a coming judgment similar to Elijah, so he must be Elijah. Others said, no, 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 that's not it. They'd say, no, he is Jeremiah uh, because of how he spoke on behalf of God and spoke with authority, said he's gotta be Jeremiah. Then there was everybody else said, well, if he's none of those, the dude's a prophet. He's always talking about things that are coming and about different th prophecies in the future, so maybe he is just a prophet. Now, why would that even be mentioned and why do we even talk about that today? The point of all of this is that no class of people in that time regarded Jesus as being the Messiah. Remember, their Messiah, their picture of who they thought was going to come was gonna be a political hero that would come with authority, take control of the nation, overthrow the government, and let the Jewish people live in peace. So how could they believe that Jesus was who he said he was when their view and their belief of a coming Messiah was simply a political hero and coming king? But even in 2021, it can be easy for us to play Monday morning quarterback and say, well, how could you miss Jesus? How, oh, we have all this stuff written out. How could you not know that was Jesus? Well, think about some of the misconceptions of Jesus in our day. There are some people who think that Jesus was just a great man of righteousness who was martyred for his faith. Therefore, he's just a great example of how to live, and, and you should just stand up for what you believe in. There are other people who say, well, Jesus was just one of the great teachers and the prophets of history. He is textbook-worthy material. 
Then you have others that would say, no, Jesus was only a great man who revealed some very important things to us about God and about religion. Therefore, he made a significant contribution to society as every person is on their search for God. Then there are others who say, well, Jesus was just a great man and prophet sent to the Jews in this day, and so we can simply learn and study the life of Jesus. Church, let me make myself clear. When we base our identity of Jesus off of culture and what other people think, it is a very dangerous position. This position reminds me of my eyesight. Some of you can probably relate with this. When I was a kid, I had 20-20 vision. I did, not, I did not worry about going to get a checkup. I did not worry about going to the doctor. I would stand around on that line and say, it's A-Z-Y-W, you can read the very bottom line. Life was good. Then all of a sudden, about a couple of years ago, one or two years ago, I was driving down the interstate and I said, oh, I can't read the sign. I'm not talking about the little you know, exit sign that's got like Burger King and McDonald's on the side. I'm talking about the big, bright green exit sign that says Swanee and Lawrenceville, right? And I was like, yeah, this is probably not safe for me to be driving if I can't see. So I had to go to the doctor, I had to get glasses, but it hit me that day that I was like, my vision had been getting weaker and weaker over a number of years, but it didn't hit me that day until I realized that I couldn't see the exit sign. Church, this is what happens when we find our identity and culture. This is what happens when we see ourselves as the world sees us rather than how Jesus sees us. This is what happens when we're defined by our jobs, by our financial status, by our family photos, by how good our house looks, right? For some of you students over here, this is what happens when we uh, are defined by our filters on our Instagram pictures or how many TikTok followers we have or how many Snapchat streaks you have going. When we base our identity off of culture, it is a dangerous view. It is a dangerous spot to be in. And church, if we are not careful, we can find ourselves so immersed by the culture around us that we will drift into viewing a Jesus that is not biblically sound. And Jesus will become just another historical figure that's in the textbooks and not the living, breathing Savior of the world. But notice this. All of these titles given by the Jewish people were good. They weren't disrespectful. They were obviously giving respect to Jesus. But the thing was, they failed horribly of honoring Jesus for who he truly was. Church, we cannot find our identity in culture. That leads us to point number two, is that our identity is personal. Our identity is personal. Now, this is where things get interesting. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am. Now, so Jesus at this point, he's heard from the disciples about what the culture thinks, about what the crowds think. Now it was time for the game. Now it was time to figure out what do you actually believe. Now, notice this emphasis on the word you. In my opinion, it should be stated in all caps, bolded, italicized, underlined, 16 exclamation points because you cannot overemphasize this word enough. In the original language, it's in the emphatic form, it's in the plural, specifically referring to the 12 disciples that, was, that were standing around Jesus. One might note that this personal pronoun could be translated as, okay, in contrast to the culture, in contrast to the crowds, who do you say that I am? I mean, Jesus gets directly to the point. And church, this is the most important question you could ever answer. In fact, every single person that's walked the face of this earth is faced with this short, direct 
question. Who do you say that Jesus is? This question is so big, in fact, it determines your eternal destiny. It determines whether you spend eternity with Christ in heaven or apart from Christ in a place called hell. Now look at Peter's response on behalf of the 12 disciples. He says this in verse 16. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, again, in plain English, you don't really get the full picture and scope of the authority and the power that this statement carries. Peter here, in the Greek language, uses four different articles for each name, emphasizing the power and the uniqueness and the authority that each one carries. So the literal reading of the original language says this. You are the Christ, the Son of the God, the living one. Church, each is powerful, each is unique, and each carries its own authority. So Peter, when he speaks on behalf of the disciples, is making no mistake. Jesus, you are the Christ. It's the question that everyone watching online and everyone in this room must answer today. It was on this occasion of the 12 disciples of Jesus that through their spokesman, Peter, stated this truth with greater conviction and confidence than ever before. They did so against this backdrop of the crowds were confused, the culture didn't believe in Jesus, and the religious leaders are so ticked off and they're so scared of Jesus usurping their authority that they are determined to get rid of him. But get this. It was this response from Peter that once, on behalf of the disciples, that once began as a hope-filled expectation of Jesus that had now become a heart-fixed certainty. It was once, I think I'm gonna follow this guy. I think I'm gonna give my life to him. I'm not fully convinced of who he is. And it's this very moment in a secular world that Peter says, you are the Christ. It is, it is not just head knowledge. Now it is heart knowledge. And this passage right here represents the climax of Jesus' teaching ministry. For some two and a half years, Jesus had been moving to this moment. He was teaching and he was reteaching. He was affirming and he was reaffirming. He was demonstrating and redemonstrating. He was building and rebuilding the truth of who he was in order to establish it securely and completely in the minds of the 12 disciples. And if you go back and look at kind of the last couple of months of the life of Jesus, you will find the crowds are frustrated, people are leaving him, the Jewish leaders are ticked off at him, ready to get rid of him, but the more heated and the more intense the moments got, the more time that Jesus spent with his 12 disciples. What a lesson for us today. The more heated and the more tense that our life gets, the more that we should spend with those that we are close with in the fellowship of the Lord the more people that we should have to invest in, the more people that we can be able to disciple. Who are you pouring your life into? Who are you sharing the information that's in your head and the things you believe about Jesus to? Who are you taking under your wing in your life? Because Jesus did. Then look at verse 17. Notice who revealed this to Peter. He says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Make no mistake, this truth was not revealed by a man or anyone on the face of the earth. It was revealed not by natural means, but by supernatural means. It was God the Father that literally uncovered his eyes and uncovered his heart. So to reveal this truth to him that had once previously been hidden. This is why Jesus can look at Peter and say, blessed are you. He was saying, hey, you were once blind, but now you can see. Don't miss what's happening here. God the Father removed the veil regarding Jesus' true identity. He allowed our faith to become personal. 
Now he's just not an abstract God that's ruling and reigning. Now he sent someone to die for us, to take our place on the cross so that our sins can be forgiven. This should be an encouragement to everyone in the room and everyone that's watching online today. Why? Because now we understand that it was God in our life that removed our blinders so that we could see who he truly is, so that we could see what he's truly done. The Bible is clear that it was God that loved us first so that we could then love him in return. It is God that reveals things to us so that we can know him and we can grow our relationship with him. It is God that so desired a personal relationship with you that he sent his one and only son to die a gruesome death on this earth to serve as a mediator between a holy and a righteous God and a broken and a sinful people. It is God that has made a way for us. It is God that allows us to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that our identity is personal. Does not mean that it's subjective. This does not mean that you can believe whatever you want and that all roads simply lead to heaven. What I am saying is that your faith has not become personal until the moment you've surrendered your life to Christ. And church, I go back to when I was about a six or seven year old kid. I can remember I was sitting at a small country church and I was sitting in the middle left section about six rows back. I was sitting with my grandmother and I had a little Tonka trucks. I was rolling them up and down her leg. I was flipping an hourglass upside down. I was scribbling on a piece of paper. You know, I was like, when can we get out of this place? I don't want to go play. I want to go have some food. I don't, I don't get this church thing, right? I grew up in church. My parents talked to me about Jesus but up until that point, I just knew about him. I had no relationship with him. I remember I was sitting in that service and my pastor said something like this. He said, you can know the God of the universe. You can know the one who created you. And even as about a seven-year-old kid, I was like, what? How can this be possible? And then he began to go on and explain the gospel about what Jesus had done for me. And all of a sudden, even as a seven-year-old kid, I recognized I am a sinner. I, I, I don't have a relationship with this Jesus guy that you're talking about. Now, I had not done anything bad in the world's eyes, but I was still born into sin. I'd still flick my brother on the back of the head when I wasn't supposed to, right? I told a lie before, right? And so even as a seven-year-old kid, I began to rationalize these things in my brain of, what does this mean for me? But can I be honest for a moment, church? Even as a seven-year-old kid, I recognized I didn't want anybody else to know that I did not have a relationship with Jesus. I didn't want anybody else to know, oh, I got sin in my life. So that service ended, you know what I did? Nothing. That very night came, so that Sunday night church back then, was sitting in church, and the way back right over there, can't make this up, it's on a parable of the lost sheep. I walk in, there was just, just conviction gripping my heart and gripping my life. I was sitting in the back, and I remember uh, my pastor talked about how Jesus, the shepherd, the 99 are here and the one sheep goes astray and the shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one. And I'm sitting there and I'm telling you the Holy Spirit came upon my life and you're just like, you are the one. And I'm like, Lord, I, I, don't, I, don't, I still was like, I don't want anybody to know I'm not saved. I, I had this tension. I'm like, what do I, do I, can I take that step? I was like, I don't know what to do. Service ended, guess what I did? Nothing. That very night came, all happening in one day. Very night came, all my brothers and I slept in the same room. All of our beds were in there, and they were asleep before I was. Never happened. I can fall asleep like that. I was like, what is going on? Why are they asleep, and I can't get sleep? I was tossing, I was turning, and then, as I was turning this way, turning that way, and trying to fall asleep, there was that still, small voice that was drawing me to him, that was saying, if you'll just give me your life. You see, church, that was the moment that I recognized that my faith needed to become personal.
So I got up out of my bed, I went into the living room, my mom and dad sitting on the couch. And I said, hey, they're watching a movie. I said, can you pause the movie? I sat on the middle panel of my couch that's still in my mom's house today. On the middle panel of that couch, my mom and dad led me to the Lord. And it was in that moment that my faith was not just head knowledge, it was personal because of what Jesus had done in my heart and in my life. Because up until that moment, I had no reason to protect my faith because I had no relationship with the Lord. But in that moment, once I said yes to Jesus, I gave my life to him, now all of a sudden my identity is valued, it's treasured, and it needs to be protected. So here's my question to you. Have you come to a place in your life where your identity is personal? Where your faith is personal? Or is it just head knowledge has not become heart treasured, heart valued, and heart protected? And that leads me to my final point, which is that our identity is in Jesus. Our identity must be in Jesus. One of the best verses in all the Bible takes place in verse 18. It says this, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, throughout all of Christianity, there's been great, I mean heated, debate over this verse. You have those that come out of the Catholic tradition that say, well, Jesus meant that it was on Peter, and it was on Peter that we're gonna build this church. Then you have people from the Protestant evangelical perspective where we would follow that says, no, he's not referring to Peter, he's referring to himself, he's referring to Jesus. And I think it's interesting to point out that even Peter himself, in Peter's own words, said it was Jesus. First Peter chapter two, verse four says this. Peter in his own words says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. And it's on the back of that statement that Peter then goes on to explain in the rest of that chapter. He says, you know what? It was Jesus the cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation. Jesus is the most precious of all stones on which every other believer is then built up. If you don't believe Peter, then look at the original language. It is crystal clear, it's Jesus. That word for Peter in the original language is a masculine noun that means a small pebble or small stone. Now, remember where this took place in Caesarea Philippi, right next to this pagan temple that was overshadowed by this massive, gigantic, rocky cliffside. But when Jesus uses that word rock on which he's gonna build his church, he uses a different word. It's a feminine noun that literally means a massive rock, a massive cliffside. So you have Peter who's this small stone compared to this gigantic, massive stone that Jesus is going to build his church. No good builder is gonna take a small stone and say, I'm gonna build a house on that. So you have Peter Jesus who's saying to Peter, Peter, you are the small stone on which this rock is going to be built. You have this big fortress in myself that you are gonna be stacked on top of. It is Jesus that we must place our faith and our hope and our trust in. Clearly, the teaching of Scripture is that on the rock of Jesus, the church will be built. Not on fancy worship, not on a rock star pastor, not on a nice multi-million dollar campus, but it's on Jesus. Look at what Jesus will do. He brings his people together in common. Jesus says, I will build. Then he goes a step further and he says, he's gonna build it on a firm foundation. He says, on this rock, I will build. Then he builds something that belongs to him. He said, it's my church. 
all throughout the Bible, we are seen as the bride of Christ. We belong to Jesus. And then finally, he builds it into a stronghold. So much so that he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, that last statement might be one of the most comforting verses in all the Bible. Some translations use the word hell, some use Hades. In the New Testament, they're synonymous terms that literally mean uh, out of sight and a place of punishment. It's also a common Jewish phrase that refers to death, but more specifically in our day, it's the place where people go in eternity when they do not have a relationship with Jesus. You see, death is the ultimate weapon of Satan. But what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. Satan thought he could solve his problems by killing Jesus, by getting rid of him. But what Satan meant for evil, God meant for good. It was through his death and his burial and his resurrection that Jesus conquered death, giving victory to any, anyone who has built their future on the rock. Giving victory to anyone who has their identity in Jesus Christ. But look at this. When Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail, I think a lot of people have misunderstood this to mean, well, that means Satan and his forces, they're gonna attack the church, but they're not gonna prevail because God will protect his church. Now, that is certainly, I'm not saying that could not be it, but while this could be true, realize that gates are not offensive weapons. You don't pick up a gate and start slinging it at somebody. It's not how you go to war, right? Gates are defensive weapons. Think about it. This picture is not of Satan attacking the church, but it is a picture of what Christ did in his death and his burial and his resurrection. It is rather Christ attacking the gates of hell in his death and his resurrection that there was nothing that could stop Jesus from going to the cross. The Bible says that before Christ, we are what? Dead in our trespasses and our sins. But after Christ, we are alive in the body through the Spirit, through Christ Jesus. There was nothing that could stop Jesus. And when the moment you gave your life to Christ, there was nothing that could stop him from plucking you out of the clutches of hell and saying, that one is mine. Because when our identity is upon Jesus, every single thing changes. Now, the gates are not strong enough to withstand the rock of the church, Jesus Christ. And then finally, we see that the context here matters. Remember, they're standing next to this big, huge, rocky cliffside. And some people in that day literally thought it was the entrance of the gates of hell. Now, there's a picture on the screen. I got a chance to take a trip to Israel uh, a couple years ago, and uh, I took this picture, and uh, standing a little bit back from it, but you can see there's like a little cave type of thing there. That would be in the, like the left side, right behind this pagan temple would be where this was found. And so, it was a, remember, it was a wicked place. It was a very earthly place, and so people literally thought this was a place that was the entrance of the gates of hell. And it's on this backdrop church that Jesus takes his disciples miles and miles away from their central pub, the central base of ministry, to a place they probably haven't been very much, the most northern part of Jesus' ministry. And it's upon this that everybody knew what the place was known for, that everybody knew what this meant, that it was literally they thought the entrance to hell. It's upon this backdrop, Jesus stands up and looks at the 12 disciples and he says, guys, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. Church, if that's not a comfort, I don't know what is this morning. That doesn't mean that life's gonna be easy. It doesn't mean that we're gonna be spared from hardships, but if we 
believe in the promises of God, we rejoice because our salvation is not dependent upon what we can do, but on what Christ has done. And when we end our time this morning, there's a, there's a quote I wanna read you that really summarizes what I'm trying to say. It's by a guy named Charles Spurgeon, probably one of the greatest preachers to ever live. And as I read this quote, I want you to think about your own life and see if this applies to you. He says this. O you who in these regions profess to abide in the Lord, may you dwell deep in Christ. When you get upon the rock of Christ Jesus, you are safe. But when you get into the rock, then you are happy. A man on the rock will be subject to the wind and to the rain, to the damp of the dews and to the heat of the sun, but oh, a man in the rock. It does not matter to him what the weather is, whether it blows or shines, he is sheltered. Oh, to get fully into Christ, to have a deep experience of our union with him and a solemn conviction, deepening into a full assurance of our exaltation in him. You see, church, our identity must be in Jesus Christ. It can't be in the culture. It's not in the world. It's not in us. It is 100% on Jesus. You want to know how to protect your identity spiritually? Just understand it's not built on culture, what others think around you. But it's personal. It must be treasured. It must be protected. It must be valued. But most importantly, that it's built upon Jesus Christ. With every head bowed and every eye closed, nobody looking around, not going to drag this out. But as we've talked about today, the invitation is clear for everyone. If you're in the room, maybe you're even watching online right now, and you have never given your life to the Lord, that means that your faith is not personal, that you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Your identity is built on something else other than Jesus. The Bible is clear that anything not built upon the rock of Jesus was destined to fail. Maybe you grew up coming to church. Maybe this is your first time watching us online, stepping into our room today. The Bible is clear that if you repent of your sin and you trust in Christ, you will be saved. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We say it every week here at Crosspoint. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Today, you can decide that your identity is not built on the world, but it's rather built upon Jesus. Regardless of your situation, learn from me. Learn from my mistake as a seven-year-old kid and turn to Christ while you have the chance. Maybe you're watching or in the room today and you wanna give your life to Christ today. Would you just pray something like this? Pray in your heart. Say, Lord Jesus, I admit that I am a sinner. I believe that you came to this earth to die for me. And today I confess my sin before you. I repent of my sin and I turn to you. Lord, would you save me right here and right now? Now, with nobody looking around, if you just prayed that prayer for the first time, here's all I want you to do. Take out your phone, or if you're at home, go to your computer, either go to crosspointchurch.com slash decision, or text the word Jesus to 
888-255-2566. Either go to crosspointchurch.com slash decision or text Jesus to 678-255-2566. Now, you might be asking yourself, why do they want me to do that? What's the purpose of this? I cannot describe to you the amount of celebration we would like to have as a staff if people were to get right with the Lord, to give their life to him, to make it personal. So number one is to celebrate with you. Number two is to be able to follow up with you and to encourage you. And number three is to be able to give you some resources that will help you on your newfound walk with the Lord. Now, with everybody else looking back up here, maybe you've given your life to Christ, but you've never been biblically baptized. You've never actually gotten in and shown the church that you are committed to the Lord. We have a team out at Connection Point ready to talk with you about baptism, ready to talk with you about church membership, ready to talk with you about any spiritual question that you might have. We are here for you and ready to support you in any way that we can. And church, as we end our time today, it is my prayer that we can all say, as we walk out this room, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time that we've had this morning. And we've just looked at your word, Lord. One of the great promises in all of the Bible, God, may we take comfort that there was nothing, God, that could stop you from going to the cross for us. There was nothing that could stop you from defeating the powers of evil and the powers of hell forever, God. And it's my prayer that we would all look to you as our rock, as our fortress, as our master, as our Lord, and as our Savior. God, I thank you for your power. I thank you for ultimately giving your life for us so that we could live a life that's dedicated to you. God, we love you. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.